Thank you, Mike. I confess that when uh, your pastor Stan um, asked me if I would come and uh, fill the pulpit one day when he was on a sabbatical, it was as close to an automatic yes as I could give to something like that, partly because of just long history here with Eastminster. This is as close as I have to probably a home church. I've been to many services in here, mostly when I was a lot younger. Uh, Both my mom and my dad's extended families are from Wichita, and this has been home church. A lot of you probably know Bob and Joanne Howard. It's my mom's parents. Um, And uh, in fact, many of my family is about four rows back. So hello, extended family. And um, it was a joy to be with you all yesterday. Of the things that I remember about this sanctuary, surely one has to be a Christmas Eve service I must have been eight or nine years old, probably sitting all the way back on the last row of the balcony up there. And it's candlelight Christmas Eve service. And as kids are wont to do, we had candles. And somewhere late in the service, I realized that my sisters and I had been dripping hot wax onto the coat of the woman who was sitting in front of us, who we did not know. And so this is the, in the final hymn, we did the only appropriate thing, which was to leave right at that moment. And um, mom, I'm sorry if you're just finding out about this, but if you, 40 years ago, if you left a Christmas Eve service with a newly waxed coat, um, I'm probably the one who owes you an apology. And so if you find me after the service, I'd be happy to extend that to you personally. But it is a, it is a joy and an honor to be here. And so we'll make a a hard right turn from that to the Lord's word. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter nine. You'll find Ecclesiastes pretty much in the middle of the scriptures. And uh, it may be on the screens, I'm not sure if it is, but if you have a Bible in front of you from the the row or one of your own, um, please turn with me and I invite you to keep it out and open as we hear it together this morning. This is again, Ecclesiastes chapter nine. I'll read just through verse 10. But let's listen to the word of the Lord together. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. The madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, But the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white, let no oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom 
in Sheol, that's the grave to which you were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, would you speak this word to us today by your spirit, even as you are the one who has given it to us in this written form. Lord, let these words not be simply words on a page, but something you speak to our heart that we might see afresh Jesus today for us and in seeing him have life in his name. Do this for the glory of your name. Amen. In the summer of 2021, I was driving with a couple friends down a, a highway in central California, making my way into the mountains, when up ahead, um, I spied a, a big granite obelisk, like a, a big pointy statue in the middle of nowhere. And so I tapped my friend on the shoulder and asked him to pull over. I wanted to see what this thing was. And so I got out and, and here it is. It's just a monument right outside this little town. And it had a name, a plaque at the bottom. And so I did what we sort of do now, which was get out my phone and, and Google the name. Come to find out it was a wealthy California rancher from early in the 20th century who, when he died, was terrified that the town would forget who he was and all he had done for them. And so in his will, he provided a sum of money to build a granite monument to him and also left a, a fund for the maintenance and the upkeep of it so that he would be remembered. It's an odd request. And the more I read about him, the more I, I didn't like who he was either. And it left me thinking a lot sort of that summer about what is sort of the point of it all anyway, you know, in terms of death and life and memory. Is the point of life to simply rage against your death and to accomplish all you can, to make a name for yourself, build an empire, leave a monument that someday some small town will never forget your name? Or is the point to just to live it up, just to eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you will die? Or is the point to, I don't know, do something more noble, like rise above it all and play your part, kind of like the, the old stoic truth that's sort of newly popular again, if you look at the self-help books, the kind of thing that says you can't control everything, but you can control your responses, and so just live the best you can until it's your turn too to lay down and die and uh, return the circle of life and all that where you just end up being fertilizer for what comes next. Whenever you're faced with a question of death, you necessarily then are faced with a question of life. And what comes to you is that wonderful phrase from Mary Oliver, what is it that you will do with this one wild and precious life that's been given to you? It's that question the preacher of Ecclesiastes shouts an answer to. Ecclesiastes comes to us in the voice of one just simply named the preacher. But you find out that it's, it's Solomon, it's, it's David's son, the great king of Israel, passing down his wisdom. Ecclesiastes comes nearly in the middle of the scriptures and it, diving into it feels much like walking into a room where everyone's watching a movie that's already started and you know something has happened already and you get a hint that it's going somewhere, but it's hard to make sense of things in the messy middle. Ecclesiastes reads like it's addressed to someone at a crisis point in their life, someone a bit lost, someone a bit confused, someone wondering about what it is that comes next for them, someone who's stuck in either the regrets and the loops of the past and the things they have done, or uncertain about what's coming to them in the future. Asking questions like, what do I do now? How do I spend my days? And if that's at all familiar to you, then I would encourage you, look at Ecclesiastes. 
It is a book for those who have tried God's ways and found they don't often work out the way they're promised. It's also a book for those that have tried all of the world's ways and realized they can't deliver on their promise. It's a book that makes you face the world as it is, not as you want it to be. And Ecclesiastes has a core theme. Several times throughout this book, you have a refrain that goes something like this. There is a goodness to life when it's in the hands of God. There's a goodness that God gives to people to enjoy during the days of their life under the sun, their human life. And that's where we're at when we pick it up in chapter nine. Chapter nine is a meditation on life and death. Crucially, what awaits the living, what hope there may be for those who are dead. And I hope to see just four simple but critical truths from it this morning. The first would be that life really is in the hands of God, that life is in the hands of God. Second, that life ends in death. Third, that that life therefore is an opportunity for enjoying God's good gifts. And then fourth, that life is actually forever when it's in Jesus' hands. So let's look at those things together. First, life is in the hands of God. In chapter nine, verse one, you find this, the preacher says, all of this, all of this, I have laid to heart, examining it all, how both the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. To be in God's hands means to be sort of at his disposal, under his supervision, in his care. It's, it's the Bible's way of letting you know that you as a human being are not exercising total control over your life or over your circumstances. That God actually is sovereign and that you are not. And it comes out bluntly in passages like this, but it's really been the story from the very beginning. I and mean, we find in the scriptures that pretty much anybody can sort of look at the world around them and come to a sense that there's a powerful or, or wise or, or just sort of God out there somewhere, but you've got to be in the story to hear about who this God is. And so we find in the Bible that God is the one who has made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And that he put his people there as the pinnacle of his creation. The ones who are his representatives, his good stewards in his world, reflecting him and his nature to all of creation around them. But everybody knows that we've done a terrible job of that. And there's brutality and brokenness all around us in our world due to sin. And so when you think that you're in God's hands, it's kind of a terrible prospect. And your question is, well, what does it mean to be in God's hands? What fate do I deserve before me? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it nothing? Is it in between? And this is what the preacher faces. In verse one, he closes with this thought that, All of this is before him. Literally anything awaits him with a sense that no one knows what lies ahead. His point is none of us see the future. None of us can see past what is a mist, a fog to us. We only proceed along the step that we have in front. It's the fundamental reality that our path actually is in God's hands. He is sovereign over life. He's the one who's guarding and guiding us. He is the one who by his providence in his holy and wise and just way of governing all of his creatures and everything leads us where he wants us to go. But that is so often not how we live. That is not how we see things. We tend to think that things are all up to us. Last year, there was a wonderful little book written by Alan Noble called You Are Not Your Own. And 
the point of his book is simply that the lie we all live by is that we are our own. I'm my own person. I'm actually on my own, which means that everything is up to me. I can be whoever I want, do whatever I want, but at the end of the day, it's a crushing burden because everything is on me. The great Dutch writer and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once defined anxiety as the dizziness of freedom. It's when everything's possible for you and it's paralyzing and it's dizzying because if everything's possible and you have a million choices, how do you pick the right one? And what if you, what if you pick the wrong one? In my role at the church I'm a part of at Signal Mountain Presbyterian Church, I work in family ministry. So I, I spend a lot of time with students as they grow up and then go off. And I've seen a generation go off to college. And it is paralyzing if you're a student thinking about college, if you think the decision is completely up to me. If you don't have a sense that you're in the Lord's hands, that there really is a good and a wise sovereign God who's governing and leading you in your life. Because if you think it's all up to you, then the fear is if you make the wrong choice, you've destroyed things. And so there's a real difference to recognizing that you're in God's hands, that you're not on your own, that it's not all up to you, that there's immense relief in acknowledging that your life is in the hands of God, that he knows the way you take, and that he is the one leading you on. Knowing that life is in the hands of God is one thing. Facing the reality of death is another. And verse two in Ecclesiastes nine just slaps you across the face with this terrible reality. It is the same for all, the preacher says. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. What's the same event that happens to each? It's death. This is the second truth in this passage. Life ends in death. A couple of things here you see. First, that death comes for everyone. Death is the one guarantee that every single human being will face. As Solomon the preacher says, it's an evil done under the sun. The same event happens to all. Death can't be escaped. It's not natural in any way. It's not something we make peace with. He calls death an evil, really in two senses. First is it's an evil and it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not God's good design for his world. Death cuts against everything good and glorious in our world. That's why we grieve. It's why your heart floods with tears. It's why your heart bursts out or breaks out in anger. It's why you struggle to accept death. It's why sorrow pierces you years and years and years after someone is gone. We're all under this curse, Solomon says. Righteous, evil, good, bad, clean, unclean. Whether you worship the Lord, whether you don't, whether you're loyal to him, whether you're not, all suffer this same fate. And this is the second kind of evil, he says, that the hearts of people, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil. There is raging in us a kind of madness, a, a moral wildness, something that's almost irrational that is the, is the problem of our fallen human nature, of the presence and reality of sin that chafes against the death that is ours that comes as a consequence for sin. And so the shadow death cast isn't just that life ends, it's the prospect of, of eternal separation from the God who made us. Death is an end. What does he say about the dead in verse five? They know nothing. They have no reward. They're not remembered. Forever they have no more share of life under the sun. 
It's the blunt assessment that everything that seems to make life worth living as life comes to a screeching halt at the moment of death. The clock runs out, the the sidewalk ends, the the cliff falls off into the sea, the river dries up, the, the breath of life departs from a body. All that awaits then, says Solomon, is judgment. I've been reflecting on this because as I've been thinking about this over the fall, my wife and I have been watching the latest season of the great British baking show. We, like millions of other Americans, discovered it during the time of COVID when we're all shut up in our homes with our kids and have watched all of them. And one thing that strikes me is that you don't have to have seen the show to understand that every episode is three baking competitions under a strict time limit. And when that clock ends, the baker has to step away from their station and there, there are no more edits, no additions, no changes, no second opportunities, no justifications, no excuses, simply judgment and evaluation on what has been lived up to that point. And Solomon says, that's how death is for us. So what do you do? What do you do in the face of that? Solomon says, well, if you're living, you have hope because there's still time. Better to be a living dog, the least of all the animals, than a dead lion, he says in the proverb. At least the living one has options in front of them. How am I going to live? There's all kinds of options. Maybe you've exercised some of these. Maybe your neighbors have. There's the option of despair, which is just to face the meaninglessness of life and give up. To say, what's the point? If my work won't outlive me, if my finances don't last, if my name's forgotten, why bother anyway? Why not just throw in the towel now? There's denial as an option. Denial is pretty powerful. You can go a long way with denial. You can spend vast sums of money on your own happiness, your your own quest for life or liberty or enjoyment until the clock runs out. You can spend massive efforts to maximize your pleasure or minimize pain or forestall aging. Think of all the investments we make in beauty or youth or our bodies just to preserve the thought that if we're young and beautiful, we'll still be loved. Or there's distraction. You can throw yourself into busyness. You can work really hard. You can think as long as I'm busy and running around and doing all these things, I don't have to face the reality of my fate. Or you can get endless hours of scrolling on Netflix or your phone or whatever it comes to be. It's one less thing to have to pay attention to. And then finally, there's my favorite, which is a kind of defiance, a kind of a rejection of death like a current of anger and a protest at it. Think of Dylan Thomas's famous line in the poem, do not go gently into that good night. Rage, he says, rage against the dying of the light. Most of us know something of that anger. But there's one more option, and it's the one Solomon puts in front of you, and it's it's our third truth, that life means prospect for enjoying God's good gift for what it is. The good things in life are not to be despised or rejected simply because we despair, as if everything is just dust and ashes, nor are they to be consumed and spent on defying the inevitable, as if, as if we only eat or only drink or only be merry because we know one day we're going to die. But Solomon says this in verse 7, and don't miss this. Look at what he says. He says, go, 
Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Life is an opportunity to enjoy the goodness of God that is given to you. You can give yourself to a contented life because God is the giver of all good things. His hand that you're in is both the source of the gift to you and the enjoyment of the gift when you return thanks to him. God doesn't go back on his gifts. We don't need to worry if he's approved of the basics of life. He says he's already approved what we do. So look at these gifts, starting in verse seven. They bring contentment, bread, wine, fellowship around a table to meal. They bring comfort, clothing, he says. Let your garments be white. Let oil not be lacking for your head. Oil was a sign of abundance and joy and blessing. They bring companionship. This is verse nine. Enjoy life with a wife or a husband as a lifelong companion in your labor. And then they bring your calling. The work your hands finds to do, work at that with all of your might and your heart. Work's not a curse, it's a gift that God gives us to exercise as his stewards in his world. So Solomon says, you don't need to know the whole plan of God. You don't need to know what comes next for you to be able to properly enjoy your life as a creature in God's hands. But he still ends it with this reality in verse 10. There's none of this in the grave where you're going, by the way. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom there. Solomon looks ahead into the future and it's like, it's like a veil there, like a shadow that he can't see behind. The best Solomon has to offer us here is, don't you know? that your life is in the hand of God. But Ecclesiastes, and Solomon really, doesn't have the last word. That belongs to one who is, as he says in the Gospels, greater than Solomon. There's one greater than Solomon here, and that's Jesus our Lord. And in Jesus, we find a final truth about life, that life endures forever when it's in his hands. Jesus didn't despair at death, and give up on life, though he did know despair. Think about his despair in the garden, praying in a sorrow that leads almost to death, that this cup would pass from him. Jesus didn't defy death. He didn't just rage against the dying of the light. Though he understands our anger and our frustration, he wept when his friend Lazarus died, and he cried out in a loud voice. It's literally an angry voice at death when he raised him from the dead. But Jesus also didn't simply live and enjoy God's gift until he died and then went to the grave. What he did is what the scriptures say when they say that Jesus lived and died and rose again. And in so doing, triumphed over the grave and broke the power of death forevermore. If you look at Hebrews 2, there's a great line where the author says, it's by the grace of God that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Like he took it onto himself for all of us. Let me read to you from verse 14 and just follow the argument here. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, us as people, since we human beings are flesh and blood creatures, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same thing. He shared our same bodily reality so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Knowing that we are going to die is like a, a slavery over us. It just drives what we do. 
And the, and the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, understand, Jesus was made like his brothers in every way so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation is a funny Bible word. It just, just means like atonement, a sacrifice that puts us at one with God. That Jesus isn't just another high priest who puts something else in your place. But he's one who puts himself in your place. He lays down his life on your behalf, in your place, to make you at one with God. It's what the great theologians called the wonderful exchange, that Jesus took to himself all that was yours, your life, your death, your sin, and he gave you all that is his, his life, his joy, his indestructible life forever, that you might be forever united to God by his spirit. Now, if the preacher who has seen it all and after examining everything can say, enjoy life because you're in the hands of God, how much more hope and enjoyment must be ours when we have Jesus Christ as our Lord? Joy because we have an eternal share in him. Joy because we have his promise that one day he will bring heaven to earth and make all things new in his glorious new creation. Joy that our labor, our work, our love, as the writer says, are not in vain. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, because we have an unshakable hope of a life to come. The final judgment on our life isn't that we belong to ourselves. It's not that we, on anything that we do or don't do, it's simply God's verdict. And we have that in Jesus Christ. And so to say that life is in God's hands, is to affirm that yes, our life will face death, but thanks be to God, our life will endure forever, thanks to the triumph of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's because of that truth that you can freely devote yourself to the enjoyment of God's good gifts here and now, because your life is held securely in his hands. There's a story told about the great reformer Martin Luther, actually of a mighty fortress is our God fame. He was asked one time that what would he do if he knew that the world was going to end tomorrow? And Luther's rumored to have said, if I knew that the world would come apart tomorrow, I would still plant my apple tree. That's not a despairing posture at all. It's not a defiant one either, although it's a bit cheeky to say you'd still plant your apple tree if you knew the world was ending. But what Luther knew is that there's a confident hope that belongs to us as Christians, that life is in the hands of God. And though from our angle, life seems to end at death, from God's perspective, God will make all things new because Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of yours. And so that God is not gonna abandon his people nor his creation, but will come back to them finally and make them all new again. May that wisdom, that power, that joy be something that animates your enjoyment of the life that you're given here and now. Let's pray together. Father God, even as the Psalms say, you are the one who makes known to us the path of life. It's your presence that offers us a fullness of joy. It's your right hand that has in it pleasures forevermore. Would you so give us the grace in Jesus to taste and see the goodness of what you have given, that we might return thanks and praise to you and your glory.
In your name we pray. Amen.